Anyway, so yeah, so there's a, I mean, just to mention some of the other, there was Pesach, um, obviously all these hotels that canceled on people over Pesach, um, you know, there was a lot of questions uh, being discussed amongst uh, um, the postkim and Halacha, how does it work, do they have to return all the money, part of the money, because they already laid out money, you know, and, and they've been working on it for months before, and uh, and whoever, you know, so, so it's, it's just fascinating questions that are going around, and many of them might be relevant to your businesses too, um, so there's a lot of, it's, a, it's I mean, this is the ramifications for this, um, besides the health ramifications, the halachic uh, legal ramifications in monetary law and things like that are going to be, you know, are, are amazing also what's, what's happening. So, so I'm just going to read you, this is just to show you what's going on in the rabbinic world, um, which I'm somewhat part of. So this is, I'm just holding this up, this is a hundred pages. Uh, it's a little, it's a book basically that wasn't even published, it was just sent out um, to, that I got a hold of on the internet from one, this is one rabbi in Israel, it's a hundred page pamphlet of all the questions he had gotten just in the prior two weeks prior to Pesach, um, all the halachic questions and they, you know, that were written down and published. Uh, most of them, obviously, as we're saying, related to health, but I'll, and I'll read you some of the topics. Um, but but uh, unbelievable question. This is just this was Arab Pesach. Since then, it's been another two weeks from before Pesach with literally hundreds of other questions. Um, there are literally some rabbis that are sending out daily, you know, they're writing responses. I would say ten a day and just pumping them out. Um, amazing stuff. And these, what's amazing about these questions. As we mentioned before in our previous classes, these are questions that are, many of them are life and death issues that, you know, have always been discussed um, in our class and in many other places theoretically, but, but these are life and death decisions that are being made in a practical way and they have to be made very quickly um, on the spot um, for hospitals, for doctors. I've been on numerous classes um, that I were ab was able to sneak into with um, r rabbis giving practical, having practical question and answer uh, sessions with doctors um, in hospitals, in ERs in Manhattan, um, where they call in um, all together, they have an hour a day where they're speaking to this rabbi in Israel, asking him their literal practical questions, I mean amazing, scary, scary questions um, that these doctors are asking him on the spot and he's answering them literally in, in uh, live time, however you say it, whatever the languages, I mean, answering the questions on the spot to these ER um, physicians uh, and uh, working in hospitals in New York. So there's amazing stuff going on and the ramifications of these, meaning our grandchildren, just as we're studying today, Chuvot uh, from a hundred years ago, in, in a hundred years, our grandchildren are going to be studying these, uh, the answers to these questions. They're going to be published um, in, in books and svarim. And hundreds of them, like I'm saying, there's literally hundreds and hundreds of responses currently being formulated. So it's, we're living in amazing times um, in many ways, um, but even halachically, just to see the, the things that are coming up and, and um, just amazing stuff and how it's being applied. Shelly, please chew with your mouth closed. Um, okay, so 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 just going to read you. I'm going to start reading you just a list of some of the questions and then we can choose what we want to address. I mean there's some specific, some fascinating stuff that I want to talk about which is, um, I don't know if many of you have seen in the news, there's this uh, Methodist I think is one of the people involved, one of the hospitals where they're using plasma donations from people who tested, who, who were, who had COVID-19 and were cured, they're taking, they're taking plasma from them and um, 
and, and giving it to patients, assuming, hoping the antibodies from the uh, cured, not cured, but uh, people who previously had COVID-19 will help um, in current patients who have, who have the coronavirus, um, which was what's fascinating about it, as we'll see, this was all mostly started in New York by um, the original community. It was, it was basically started in the Orthodox community, this concept was with one person who happened to know um, and there was an article that came out, published today, called The Gift of Life, which discusses how it all started from one guy, um, one patient in New York, whose son decided that the doctor mentioned this might be a possibility, um, a German doctor in Westchester, and, uh, and he took it and ran with it and basically organized hundreds of people um, and thousands of, of people now in the Orthodox community who had it in New York to donate plasma, and they're running it basically with, in conjunction with the Mayo Clinic now, all the tests testing, which is fascinating. So I, I want to get into that a little. But before that, I'm just going to read you some of the topics just from this one um, rabbi in, in Israel. His name is Rabbi Asher Weiss. Like I, I mentioned before, he's the Rav in Shari Tzedek. Amazing man. Um, American, originally Canadian, I think Canadian-American. Um, lives in Israel for around 40 years now, but he's one of the premier um, poskim in medical ethics um, in Israel currently. Um, and he dealt with a lot of the questions going around. So I'm just going to read you. This is just, it's two pages. It's just the list, the index of things that he published. Again, this is published already almost two weeks ago. Since then, Asher Weiss. Um, you can Google him, look at his picture. He's a scary looking guy, but he's an amazing man. Um, so he, so just, I'm just going to read you. He has three sections here in the index. One is, the first part is Inyani Pikuach Nefesh, which is things, questions of the life and death relevant to Corona. It's all relevant to Corona. The, the section number two is Inyani Tefillah, um, dealing with different Tefillah rituals and halachic questions about Minyanim on different porches, can you, and Zoom and etc. All those questions of how do you do all that stuff and, and can you be mitzvah, can you have a minion? Um, when you're on different porches, can you re have Kriyat Torah? Can you read Torah, etc.? So that's less interesting to us, I'm assuming. Um, and then there's a section on Pesach, and then a a, uh, a section just about everything else. So I'll just read you some of the Pikuach Nefesh questions that he has here. Um, so the first, I'm just going to read them off, and then if there's something that interests us, we could address it. Um, so... Question, uh, the question number one he has here is Ben Hagas Harua Bizman. By the way, and each one is dated, and he tells you some of them are already outdated. And a lot of the things we're going to read, things are happening so quickly in real time that many of these Sakim, like for example, this morning, um, my sister's involved in the plasma donation. She's coordinating, uh, she's, she's in a bunker in somewhere in the Poconos in her summer home, and she's very bored, so she volunteered to organize all the plasma donations for this organization. Um, and so she's been sending me, she's, she's in touch with rabbis, uh, because she has to tell the donors various halachic issues about donating on Yatif and Shabbos, things like that. Um, so she was sending me some of the emails she was getting from these rabbis in New York. So I, I texted her this morning, when I woke up, an, like, an hour ago, asking her if she has any, any new material that she could send me, any other emails. So she wrote me all the things she sent me before, the rabbi says, are no longer relevant. <laughs> so so it's, things are moving so quickly um, that, as we'll see, that many of the things that they wrote about, you know, things have changed. The information changes, first of all, the scientists. As we know, these days, doctors are clueless, scientists are clueless, 
even the president's clueless. Um, so so uh, nobody knows. So things are changing so quickly in the in the medical world that obviously the halacha has to change with it. So things that they ruled about two weeks ago, um, based on the medical information they had then, might be different today. So it's just it's fascinating to see how this whole metamorphosis is happening in real time. So I'm just going to read you some of the. Some of the titles here. So again, so he starts off by Nagas Haruya Bisman his partsus magev. How how as um, religious Jews should we be um, living our lives during this time of pandemic? And he discusses as we as a lot of the stuff. Interestingly, I don't want to toot my own horn and our horn, but we we discussed a lot of this prior to this. Um, we we uh, we're on the, we're on the same page. So he talks about the previous, all the many sources that we had discussed about uh, Rabbi Kiva Eger wrote in the 1700s of what to do in pandemic and how not to have minyanim and social distancing in the 1700s um, and all the things they did then. He brings that in to, and discusses that. Then he has number two, Bechovah Sanekius Hygiena, in parentheses, which means hygiene, Rufuah Monas, and preventative medicine. So here he discusses, which is something we discussed many times in the past, the obligation of of taking care of your health is not just once you have the virus; it's obviously preventative. So about wearing masks and gloves, those all become obligatory times like this. So he goes through that whole um, topic of preventative medicine is is just as much obligatory in hygiene and being careful as to make sure you don't get it or don't spread it to someone else. Just as important as as uh, as healing yourself. In, um, once someone's sick, he also has another article here about another response about uh, that whole story that we mentioned about Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. How this is very important, actually. And notice it's been playing a large role in many of the halachic decisions, which is that story with Rabbi Yisrael Salanter in the cholera um, pandemic in in the 70, end of 1700s, early 1800s. I'm not sure when. Where he got up in the shul of Vilna on Yom Kippur and made a bracha on an apple and ate in front of everyone. So there's, there's a lot of discussion there as to, and there was a machlokas then, there was argument then within the rabbis of Vilna. The bet in of Vilna didn't agree with Rabbi Yisrael Salanta at the time because he was basically telling even the healthy people to go ahead and break their fast. Um, they said, listen, the people obviously who have cholera, they shouldn't be fasting on Yom Kippur. But for the healthy people, there's no reason to break their fast. So the question was, what was the reasoning behind Rabbi Yisrael Salat? And it's very important halacha, because many say, some say he just felt like it was preventative, as we're saying. Even if you're healthy now, you don't want to be weakened, have a weakened immune system, and therefore you should break your fast, even if you don't have cholera, because it, hopefully you want to keep your immune system up and going. And, uh, you know, at the highest level. Others understood him, no, even if there's no chance you're going to get cholera, but we have to show, and this is a very important halachic principle, which, if it's true, has many ramifications even today. I just got a letter from Israel, I'll tell you about it in a second, um, about minyanim, which is that we have to do, even for the people who the disease will not infect, but we have to show as a community that we're going to go ahead and do everything we can and be as makal, as lenient as possible in all halachic areas to show how serious the, the disease is. So therefore, the people who do, who can be affected, will take it seriously. Because if you have part of the society not taking it seriously, and maybe rightfully so, because they, whatever reason, had the COVID, or for example, in our case, the question becomes today in Israel, I don't know if you saw recently, uh, this week, yesterday, or the day before, the Israeli government is now allowing minyanim up to 19 people outside with social distancing. Um, 
So the government, the Misrat Abriyot, is now allowing it. They said they're, that they're easing the restrictions. But many rabbis are coming out and saying, no, we're still against it. Uh, many rabbis have signed letters saying, we still don't want Minyanim, because they feel like once you ease the restrictions, even for the people, let's say, where there's actually there's a yeshiva being formed in Israel, for people who already had COVID, you're only allowing you in if you come with negative with a test that shows you have the antibodies for COVID. Then you're allowed into the yeshiva, and only they're only going to have rabbis teaching there who already had COVID. Um, as they announced uh, one of the, one of the actually MKs Ari Derry from Shas announced this a week ago. They're forming this yeshiva. So many rabbis are saying, no, that's wrong, because once you start easing the restrictions, then even for the people that, yes, for them, there's no pikoch nefesh, there's no issues, because let's assume we know the fact that they already have it, which it's even that itself is not clear. There are cases, supposedly, reporting people who had it are retesting positive. But, but leaving the science out of it for a second, it's important just not to start easing restrictions, because the people that can be affected, who can still be affected, will now look at it in a more lenient way. And that's how some understand that Rabbi Israel Salanta, that's the reason he was permitting even the healthy people to break their fast on Yom Kippur for this very reason. Not because, you know, it'll help their immune system. Now, it wasn't a preventative measure for not getting ill. On the contrary, it was just to show we have to, sometimes we have to go to the opposite extreme. Whereas we know Jews are very stubborn people and they're going to take these these uh, easing of restrictions as a way, okay, it's not, it can't be so bad if the Misrata Briyut is allowing Minyanim, up to 19 people with social distancing, so okay. And and you're going to have some of these elderly people coming to the Minyan who look at it in that way. Um, so, that, so that in itself is a problem. So that's a fascinating thing. I'll just read you a letter I received this morning from Israel. Um, I can find it quickly here. It's from uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Berkowitz, an American rabbi living in Israel who writes exactly this thing. Um, it's an email, it's actually dated yesterday. Um, he's, he's writing it to his community in Israel. He's the he has, uh, as we know, in Israel there are many Anglo communities of Americans. Um, so he's he's a rabbi in a neighborhood called Sanhedrin Mechavet. He's also actually the Rosh Hashiva in Eishat Torah. Now, and he writes like this. He says, "I've been diving on my rooftop, um, being mitzvah to a minion down below." So he's been diving on his rooftop where there's a minion outside down below. He doesn't want to join the minion from where I get to see the going on in the area. And he says, first of all, so he's claiming now that the Misrata Biyut eased the Minyanim, he says, the situation is out of control. People are, are walking around without masks, Minyanim allegedly keeping to the rules, but in reality are nothing more than kosher style without masks. And he says, um, you know, they're officially keeping the rules. They're, they're, uh, they're keeping the Misrata Biyut rules, but he says it doesn't really happen. People are without masks. Kriya Satora, reading the Torahs as usual, that means they're calling people up to the Torah, and the two meters observed for Shmon Asrei, um at best. So he's saying, really, I think it's supposed to be six meters. I don't know how many how the meters translates into feet. But whatever it is, he's saying the rules aren't happening. It seems as if people are under the misconception that the government's decision to allow outdoor minyanim is an all-clear sign and that the danger is absolutely, is substantially, ostensibly over. He says, let's face it, adhering to the Misrata Briut's rule in a minion is not so practical, practical and it's just not happening. So he goes on to say that, in his opinion, no one should leave their homes, no, everyone should still continue davening by themselves, even though the government is allowing it. Because again, anytime you have this easing restrictions, I think we're going to face that here in the States too, it, it, it gives people who should be 
um, not leaving their homes because they're at a higher risk, you know, gives them that idea, this misconception that things are not as bad as, as they think. So that, so that in itself is a fascinating topic. So that's just a fascinating letter. I'm not going to read you the rest of the letter. He just says, I urge our entire, our entire Kihila and the entire Anglo community in Eretz Israel to go back to the... Ma- to the Merpeset Minyanim, which is they would have Minyanim on their porches, um, meaning separate. Everyone stands on their porch outside separately from their apartments, and then they have a minion together, which is halachically questionable if that's considered a minion, um, or davening bichidis inside your home. He says, uh, I am um, in Shloshim for my father. And I have yet to daven for Namad once. He says, I haven't got to Shul once yet. I'm sure that in today's situation, urging the Tzibur, the community, to take things seriously is a greater merit for my father than davening with a minion. So that's a very important thing to understand that, uh, you know, people think, you know, I, actually uh, today I got an email on Houston, believe it or not. Someone's uh, father died in, uh, I'm not going to mention names, someone, actually a Bethy Shuren member, whose father died in uh, Louisiana, going to the funeral today, and they're trying, when they get back, to set up a minion outside their home for the shiva. Um, and this lady sent me an email, can I join? It's on the next block for me, and I, and I wrote absolutely not. I will not join the minion, even though they're practicing social distancing. But people, you know, again, I don't want to give off that impression that, that this is something that should be being done, especially in Houston, where also where the news media picks it up, and it's just not worth it. Um, that's another aspect, which, as we know, one second, Shelley, where, where many, the news media has been picking up many of these stories. There's been funerals in New York, and it's been terrible PR also for the Jewish community. Um, about what's going on, people look at them and say, "Look, they're not—they're flouting the, you know, the rules." And and so that's also something that's very important. I actually had a case. Just tell you about a case I had last night. There's another whole issue which we didn't discuss, which is mikvah issues, <laughs> because um, women who have to go to the mikvah, the question becomes, how do the mikvahs could be said technically if someone's exposed to COVID? How do you deal with it? So they have all these fascinating rules that they've come up with. You know that obviously you have to, we, we have to rely on these women to trust them to say that they don't have the virus and they wait. They put in chlorine. They wait 24 hours between each woman or two hours and depends. Right. So all the mikvahs have gotten together in Houston and made rules. Many women are not going to the mikvah because they're scared, rightfully so. Um, so so uh, last night we had a case. My wife was dealing with a woman who had um, who actually is a nurse. She's newly married, four months married, not, not Orthodox, but she wants to. She was trying to keep this mitzvah mikvah, and she, um, she was. A, she's a nurse. She's a labor and delivery nurse, and she found out. She's supposed to go to the mikvah last night. She found out uh, two days ago. Her hospital informed her that she dealt with a woman, a woman who in labor and delivery, who was fine, but now. Two days after labor delivery, they tested her, and she, she does have COVID. She was exposed to her. And now she has to go to the mikvah. So she called my wife. What is she supposed to do? So uh, we, the mikvahs say that you have to either have a test showing you're negative. Once you're exposed, the rules in the Houston mikvahs are either you have to show that you're negative, uh, meaning you have to have a test showing you're negative, or you have to, they won't allow you to go for 14 days to the mikvah. So this woman was saying that, uh, you know, like she's they're only married four months not like they're married 30 years she, she really wants to go to the mikvah um you know so uh so we so we were trying to find out so i called uh, a rabbi outside of houston to figure out there's a way you can go i was telling my wife maybe they can go to galveston they can go to the ocean 
go in the ocean is not a problem. They can go down to Galveston. And maybe she would agree to go down to Galveston with you know with her husband, take a dip, a little skinny dip in the ocean. Um, it turns out she's scared of sharks, so she doesn't. So that didn't work. But the rabbi okayed it. But what was interesting is why was I telling you? Oh, so so I was speaking to another rabbi in Houston. Um, my wife was actually speaking to the rabbi's wife, and she was saying she actually took someone to the ocean. It's a similar issue a week ago, to, to, and because uh, you could go in the ocean, but the, she was so her husband said, she said from her husband she said, listen, you know she was saying like I told my husband, why don't we just instead of having the mikvahs open, we should all the women should just go to uh, go to Galveston. Um, so he said, listen, all we need is you know, God forbid, one woman you know drowns or something, and the media will be will be like all over the media. Meaning, there's so many things you have to be careful, even though halachically this might be okay. But you have to take into account, as we're saying, is the media and how it's going to be viewed, the perception of the community at large. So there's a lot of issues, um, and that's why, like I said, I refuse to go. There's a sh- they're supposedly trying to organize a shiva minion, and I said I will not, I will not attend, even though it's down my block. I feel for the person, but again, as he's writing, this rabbi here in Israel, people have to realize the schut, um, many times not sitting shiva, especially in a case like this, or not doing things which we normally do for, for our loved ones who pass, like the Yisker and, and the Shiva and everything else, is actually a bigger merit. This is, if this is what we're supposed to be doing halachically, so making a minion, which is going against halacha maybe, um, at these times, because it could lead to pikuach nefesh issues, that's a bad thing. That's not going to help your, the memory of your loved one, the, the soul of your loved one, by doing things against halacha. Now just one, and one last story. When my father uh, passed away, um, many years ago, 15 years ago, whatever it is, I don't remember exactly how many years he, so one of the issues I had was actually giving classes, that uh, um, my, the class time was always during Mincha, my evening classes were during Mincha Meir, um, in the, in the summer months, and, uh, and I couldn't dive with a minion, so I sent this question to Israel, should, should I cancel my class, or go and say Kaddish, or better, and say Kaddish my father, or just not not dive with a minion, not say Kaddish, and, and do my class. So the answer I got from Chaim Kanievsky, who's the big rabbi in Israel, he said, he said, one class of Torah is worth a hundred Kaddishes. That's what he told me. He sent back uh, an answer. He said that the merit of your father's soul, one class of learning, those the Kaddish people don't realize. The purpose of Kaddish is, it's not a prayer for the dead. People think Kaddish is a prayer for the dead. No. Kaddish is, you're doing something in, in, to, as sort of have a merit for the soul of your loved one, okay? So, so if you do something else, let's say giving charity, there's, you know, it's Kaddishes, you're dining with a minion, you're proclaiming God's greatness um, in a minion of ten people. It's a beautiful thing. So, so that, that helps the soul. But it's nothing, it's not a prayer for the soul. So if I do other, something else um, in, in that, uh, that will, another merit for the soul, so let's such as in my case, which is giving a Torah class, he said that's worth more than, that's a hundred Kaddishes. So it's important to keep that in mind, um, that, you know, you're not doing, you're not helping the soul if you're going to make a minion and do something which is, which is against halacha. Shelly, you wanted to say something? I don't think he, he used that analogy. First of all, we have nothing in writing. The whole story, by the way, is, is, is orally, and there's a lot of question as to what exactly happened, when did it happen, you know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of conjecture there. So we don't know exactly, that's, that's why there's arguments about his reasoning, because we don't know his reasoning. 
We don't know Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's reason. Um, so, but in any case, there's a lot of been written about it since then. Because obviously it was a very, very big second and it was a very open argument between Yisrael Salanter and the Bet in Vilna at the time. Um, in the city. And many people listened to him, many people didn't listen to him. As you have today in Israel, you're having different, uh, as a matter of fact, I saw in today's news, there's a big argument um, between two big rabbis in Bnei Brak, whether, because the yeshivas are supposed to start opening for the new semester, and, and um, the biggest yeshiva is Padovich, um in Israel, and the, the Rosh Shivals, they should not open. Uh, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, the one I just mentioned, he's of the opinion yeshivas have to figure out a, a system with the Mitzrayim Briyut and how to open in a safe way. And there's a big split now of what, what's going to happen. So they're trying to work it out together in a peaceful way to figure out what to do. But but I'm saying this, so this is something that's been debated. So we don't know his reasoning for sure, but I never met, saw anything mentioned about war. But that's a good question. Yeah, so that that's a different question about endangering your life. So we, we addressed that a little, I think, in the past. He mentions it here, and I'll I'll, I'll I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to those titles in a second. So that's a good point. So um, anyway, so this, it's a very important concept to keep in mind, especially us as Jews, whether we're doctors, rabbis, whatever it is, or lay people, we need to keep this in mind that, um, first of all, for whatever reason, um, and they, we're not going to speculate, but the Orthodox community did get it hit hard in New York. Um, seems harder than most other communities and in Israel. Um, I believe my theory is because of Purim took place right when this all was starting, before all the rules were in place and there were many Purim parties going on. So, so, um, so that's what caused a lot of this, but, but that's my theory. Um, but this, but it's, so we have to be very careful about how the Jewish community is viewed in these times and, and as you know there's anti-Semites always looking for excuses I don't know if you saw any of the protests in recent days some people were holding signs you know the, about the Jewish vermin causing the causing this disease so so there's a lot of uh, it's, it's scary times in many ways but, but there's something we have Halacha has to take into account as you know this concept of how we're how it's going to be perceived um, in the non-Jewish community also when we do things. So even if halachically it might be, we might have a reason we are allowing this, but if it's going to be perceived in a negative way in the in the greater community, that could be a problem too. So that's known as eva, which means hatred, can cause hatred amongst the, the non-Jewish community to the Jewish community. So that's also a very important thing. Um, okay, so he goes on, uh, just some of the other topics here I'll read quickly. Um, because I want to get to the plasma issue. So he goes on to discuss, um, this is a minor topic, but uh, about doctors were asking him about, in order for the me- some of the gear to work correctly, they have to shave their beards, beards off. Some of these religious doctors were having issues with that. He, of course, permits that. Um, in order, this, I had the same issue when I was in Israel for the Gulf War. So the gas mask also didn't work effectively if you had a beard. So that was the only time in my life I shaved my beard off. Um, if anyone wants to see pictures, I'll send them to you later. Um, so I had to shave my beard. It, it, when the first siren ran, went off in 1991, I believe, 1990, I don't remember what year it was. In Israel, I was there, um, we went into a sealed room, and we had to put on our gas masks um, in January of 1991. Someone help me out here, something like that. So we uh, had to shave my beard in order for the mask. Originally, I left on a little Hitler mustache. Um, for a few days just to scare people. 
but uh, then I ended up shaving it off. Um, okay, so uh, so the, he talks about the shaving your beard. He, of course, he permits that. He says, um, interesting question here. Um, so he says like this. He has a question that was relevant, maybe relevant to what. Uh, these are all actual questions that were posed to him. They're not theoretical. So he has here, he discusses an interesting question um, about someone, a medic, I believe. Let me just look, make sure I'm quoting it correctly. Um, who, um, whose wife has multiple sclerosis. Okay? So he's an Atzala, he's an EMT, and his wife has multiple sclerosis. The question was, should he continue going on calls um, go taking calls, um, emergency calls, when there's a chance he will be exposed to someone corona, and then he's coming home to his wife, who's immune, who has a, who has this pre-existing condition that can affect her immunity. So uh, he's a fascinating response on that. Um, whether the person should continue to go on calls to save other people's lives on the concern that he might come home um, and his wife is is immunity, immune deficient. Um, so that's another question he discusses. Then he goes, he says, um, this is an interesting question actually written to a friend of mine who has a ambulance air airplane, one of those companies in New York. His name is Ellie Rowe, and he has a company that flies people, um, and he was requested to bring a family back who was stuck in Florida after they canceled all the flights, and they weren't allowed. What Their daughter had corona, and they, they wanted to hire this guy, my friend's company, to fly their family back from Florida to New York because she can't fly in a regular airline at the time for Pesach um, but uh, not for medical treatment so he says so the question is it's a small you know these planes are not large jets so he's gonna be the pilot who's my friend is gonna be stuck in the plane with uh, this family who were exposed to corona and this girl who has corona so he might be endangering his life just to fly someone home more for for uh, for convenience reasons than anything else so he rules that he should not fly, meaning, of course, you should not in any which way endanger your life. He says, there's a question, as Shelley mentioned before, of endangering your life to save someone else's life. But just because they want to be home in their house for Pesach, and they can't fly in a regular airline, he says, you're not allowed to fly them. He prohibited him from flying this family back from Miami. He says, let them stay in Miami. Very happy be in Miami for Pesach. And then when she's better, she can fly, she can fly back. Um, so it's an interesting uh, question. So again, he stresses he stresses the only issue of endangering your life would only be to save someone else's life, not for someone's convenience. Um, which in this case it seemed to be, even though she was sick, but she, you know there's no treatment anyway. So it's not like there's anything better in New York for her. Um, he another question posed there was. Um, so this is a mikvah question. Um, with women, can they go to the mikvah during the day? Can they shower after the mikvah, which is usually not allowed, or immediately after the mikvah? Side questions. And he has a question of wearing. Interesting question. Yeah, Ron? So that's a great question, <laughs> which I don't have an answer. But, but we did discuss, I believe previously, I don't know if you were there, um, a few weeks ago, that two things. One is, Physicians are allowed to take more risks, but and one of the reasons is specifically because of Parnassah. The No Dibiuda, we said, Recheska uh, Landa as a chuva in the 1800s, 1700s, late 1700s, about hunting. Um, a famous chuva we discussed in the past, which is he allows hunting 
if it's for parnasa purposes, meaning he doesn't allow hunting, generally speaking, because it's dangerous. Um, uh, what's the guy, the vice president? What's his vice president's name? No, no, Cheney, uh, because of my Dick Cheney, um, accident type accidents. So he doesn't allow uh, hunting in general because it's dangerous, not because it's Sarbal Chaim, which is a whole different issue, cruelty to animals. He says that's not really the, an issue there if you're going to kill the animals. But, uh, but that's besides the point. But he does say that for Panasa purposes, meaning if I, you're a trapper, that's how you, you sell fur coats, you're a furrier. So he does allow it, even though there's danger, because he says most jobs have danger, many jobs, not today. Today many of us have, have office jobs, and many jobs have danger. And therefore, um, uh, he does allow it. So, so that, if that answers your question somewhat, again, how much danger, but a minimum exposure with protection, Again, as Dr. Steinberg said um, in, in his letter to me, also is is fine. But if there's a serious exposure, meaning if you're working, actually, interestingly enough, my mom—I don't know if I told you this—major ma miracle. Um, my mom was 89 years old. Who she now was? She is 89 years old. In uh, she she broke her ankle in January, and uh, very bad break. So she had surgery. She they put her in rehab. She's in a rehab center, which is partial nursing on different nursing home on different floors of course they had uh, we were nervous they would have confirmed case of corona which they didn't tell us about at some point my mom this is early on in mid-march had a dry cough with low-grade fever she's 89 she has diabetes um and uh like long story short we were nervous it's corona this is the beginnings like they still were just starting the testing and and they said, no, don't worry, she doesn't have, we can't test her because she doesn't have any, uh, she doesn't fit all the criteria for testing at that time. Long story short, they finally did test her at uh, a week or, you know, two weeks, almost two weeks later. She came back positive, but nine days later was the result of the test. It took nine days to get the result. By that time, she was totally fine. <laughs> she wasn't coughing anymore. She was amazing, 89 diabetes. So thank God she had it. And now there are many cases confirmed in the rehab she's in. To make a long story short, she is... Um, she unfortunately she now developed other problems her surgery for whatever reason this week she was complaining about pain in her ankle and they took off the boot it's, it's already almost 12 weeks post surgery and the wound is open and she they have to now actually redo the surgery crazy story so getting a hospital in New York now for this type of surgery is almost impossible and they're saying they have to admit her through the ER which is really crazy um, so long story short but I was speaking to a doctor who performed the surgery the the, the ortho um, ortho guy and uh, he was telling me he volunteers he has no business now he's doing telemedicine but he's basically volunteering in a in a uh, corona ER because he's he's which I was, I was like amazed that this guy's doing this literally goes in every day in, in Booth Memorial in, in Queens and he volunteers so I, I told him you're crazy um, uh, you know there's no, he's not getting paid I'm assuming I didn't ask him but I'm assuming he's not getting paid for this but uh, so that's something that's a real risk he's literally volunteering in Corona wards in the ER to, to admit Corona patients so that's something I think the guy's not but in the case where you you or not necessarily dealing specifically with corona patients and you have adequate protection um, I don't think that would be considered a real you know, that would be a risk where I think for Parnassa purposes would be allowed um, right so again uh, you know yeah, uh, over there I mean I don't know it's a good, good point he prohibits it very clearly 
you know, but again, he's he's the way he explains it in the response him is it's a very small confined area where the oxygen is being you know re recycled. So that's the issue there, um, where you know you have a confirmed case of corona and the oxygen is being recycled in a very small confined area. So I didn't, uh, but so I you know I, you're right. I think probably you'd have to look at each case and figure out uh, you know, how that works. I, I don't know. Can't answer. So again, we, we discussed that, and Dr. St I asked Dr. Steinberg this question specifically, and he wrote back to me as I read to you a few weeks ago. I can read it to you again, where he says, maybe I'll read it to you again. He says very clearly that since adequate protection is available, there would be no um, there would be no permission for a doctor not to treat someone for that, not to intubate or not to do things as long as they have the adequate protection, which is available. That's what he, he, his opinion was. Okay, so that's something else. Yeah, clearly, if there's no adequate protection, you don't. That's a real risk to your life. That's a serious risk. I mean, he was saying also, if you use younger doctors, uh, you know, which we know are less risk. Um, that's what he was mentioning at the time too. You should be using, shouldn't be using, old farts like us um, to to to, uh, to treat them. What? Yeah. So if there's no that that's a big problem. And so I was reading some of these stories in these nursing homes in New York where they're wearing you know garbage bags for protection. So you're right. Uh, if you don't have adequate protection, that's basically you're risking your life. That that's a real risk to life. I think with adequate protection. I mean, just saw by the way on that just on that other response. And I don't know if you saw there was a five-year-old girl who died um, in in Kentucky. I don't remember where. It's on CNN about whose both her parents are first responders. And she had some tiny condition, which some medical problem, and they brought it home from their first responder job, exposed her, and she died. It's a tragic story. Um, so there's no question. There's real dangers out there, um, and yet you clearly have to take precautions, um, without question. But but again, for, generally speaking, for again, how do we define minimal risk? Or um, that's a big question. You, for pronounced purposes, is allowed. Okay, generally speaking, uh, you think each case you have to go through the, the you know, both sides and figure it out. So I'm, I'm going to stop reading these topics um, because there's many more, hundreds more, but I want to get this fascinating response, the fascinating email that my sister sent me. This is from, like I mentioned, my sister is, is dealing with this major Herculean effort in, in New York. Um, she's, she's not a doctor, she's nothing, she's a housewife, but she just uh, is bored in her bunker and and she can't see her grandkids, so she uh, so she just volunteered her time running, um, manning the hotlines for this organization. So I'll just read you quickly. It's an article from today that was published today. It's talking about, um, it's the name of the article is A Gift of Life. It's from some Jewish periodical. A life-saving quest to harvest the plasma of COVID survivors. And it says, um, um, so I'll just read you quickly. It says here, the story, I happen to know all the people involved in the story. I didn't know I know them until I read this article. I didn't know that they were so involved. But the story which has the makings of a Hollywood thriller and which is far from over begins with apparent serendipity. On March 29th, COVID-19 patient Rabbi Mordechai Switiski of Mansi, who happens to be my sister-in-law's brother, 
um, was taken to Westchester Medical Center where his medical condition declined rapidly. He was placed on a respirator. He's doing much better now. He's actually off the respirator. I'm just saying, I know personally. At one point, the German-born infectious disease specialist overseeing Rabbi Switiski's case, Dr. Bettina Knoll, began reviewing all possible treatments with his son, Abba, meaning with the son of the rabbi, I happen to know too. She mentioned a number of possible medications, but also said she wished that she could try using convalescent blood plasma drawn from those, this is March 29th, drawn from those who had recovered from the virus. Unfortunately, she said there were no donors. So this was a totally new thing. It wasn't even entertained yet at the time, March 29th, by anyone in the United States. Abba asked what would happen if he could find a donor. So even though Dr. Knoll did not initially receive a favorable response from her supervisors to his suggestion, the seed had been planted in Abba Switiski's mind. On April 4th, Abba contacted Rebetzin Abby Fink of the Young Israel of New Rochelle, whose shul became the center of the first major outbreak of COVID-19 virus in New York. So that was that shul in New Rochelle, where basically like 50% of the shul and uh, the whole New Rochelle was on lockdown with the National Guard. Um, that was one of the first outbreaks in New York, which by the way, that was the one, the, the girl, the wife, actually this rabbit's an Abby Fink, who is a teacher in a Manhattan high school for girls, who then, not knowing her husband had it, went, taught in the high school at the time. This is like a week before Purim. And then a girl who was with her at school, her student, came to Houston, I mean, just like such a small world, to see how it spreads. And then um, turned out she got she was actually infected. She was exposed, and it turns out she was infected. She had gone to the rodeo. She was one of the two people who were at the rodeo, the reason why they closed down the rodeo. So this all, everything comes from this one young Israel of New Rochelle. Um, so it's amazing to see how small the world is. The rodeo was closed down because of this, this woman, actually. Um, believe it or not, this Abby Fink. So he contacted her whose shul became the center of the first major outbreak in New York State, when a shul member returned from a trip abroad and did not realize he was infected. Rabbi Zafink gave him the name of another man, Mordechai Serral of Flatbush, who, who actually I happen to know also. I know a lot of people. He was uh, related. His father-in-law is my, is my second cousin, who had been searching for convalescent plasma for his hospitalized father-in-law. She informed Abba that Morty Serral had found a donor. Both Searle's father-in-law of David Sheeran, who was my cousin, and Abba Switiski's father recovered. The former never received the blood plasma. Anyway, the two 40-ish executives, Searle, partner in a law firm, and Switiski, a senior officer in a real estate development company, hit it off, however, and they decided to pool their efforts to see whether they can bring the convalescent plasma to more people in desperate need. Um, they don't have much medical background, but they possessed energy, creativity, a burning drive to get things done. Soon they would be commanding a national effort to be named the Yitzchak Leibowitz COVID Plasma Initiative to provide potentially life-saving plasma to COVID patients all across the United States. I mean, basically, it's a long article here, but they started uh, an organization, and there's a website if you want to go see it. It's called COVIDPlasmaInitiative.com, and basically they got more or less the whole New Rochelle one day um, came and donated plasma. We're talking about hundreds of people, all these people who had already had you know, a month ago, uh, recovered from Corona. And since then, the, the Jewish community, yesterday there was a drive in Lakewood, over a thousand people uh, donated plasma. It's going straight to the Mayo Clinic. It was coordinated with the Mayo Clinic, who's leading the, the research on this and actually providing it for patients. So all the, the Orthodox community in New York is basically partnered with, um, with Mount Sinai Hospital and uh, the Mayo Clinic, who's officially um, to running these studies for the government, and this is now happening across the United States. I, mean, I believe Methodist is also on the forefront of this plasma donation. I know 
Um, people here in the community also were donating in Methodist for plasma. And this is now being used. Um, again, the studies are not done yet, obviously, as to the effects, but they are saying supposedly it has an effect. Um, so it's just fascinating. So I'll just read you. This was an email that my sister got from the, uh, Rabbi Reisman, who is the halachic advisor for all this. Um, he's, a, he's the Rosh Hashiva in a yeshiva in Brooklyn called Tar Vadas. Yeah, uh, he's probably in his 50s, I would say. Um, so this is actually an actual email that he sent to my sister. This is Erev Yantif of the second days, of the second part of the Chag. Read you this email just to see how serious these people are taking it, the, the, you know, halachically speaking. So this is, again, it's dated Tuesday, April 14th. Um, 2020 from Esther Reisman who's his wife's email because he's a big Rosh Hashiva he probably can't have his own personal email um, so it's his wife's email and it's addressed to the admin at COVID plasma um, COVID plasma save a .com, which is the this organization coordinating um, all these donors again it's primarily from the Orthodox community thousands of donors um, have come forward um, and they're specifically doing it in Orthodox areas. And Israel, too, by the way, is, is, is having this done. Israel, actually, they track you. I don't know if you know. Israel, once you're confirmed case of corona, you're tracked. And then they send you emails. Please come into the hospital to donate your plasma. Um, they more or less force you to do it. So, uh, so it says like this. Erev Yantusheni, which is, again, this is, uh, so he writes like this. This morning I spoke with Rebbe, this is Rebbe Reisman speaking. Um, he says, this morning I spoke with Rabbi Ruben Feinstein Shlita and with the infectious disease specialist who has been guiding us throughout. Going into Yantif Sheni, to the Chag, these are the guidelines. If you are donating plasma, which is designated for a specific patient, you may drive to donate. So he's saying you can drive to donate your plasma on Yantif. Get in a car and drive to the hospital to the donation to donate. You may also drive back. He says, not only can you drive to the hospital, after you donate on Yantif, you can drive back. Um, and this is again written in Erev Yantif, unless it is a brief period until Matzah Yantif or Shabbos. He says if you come there and you finish donating right before the end of Yantif or Shabbos, he says in which case you should wait in your car because the problem is, as we know, the hospitals, especially in New York, are not allowing um, patients just, there's no waiting rooms and you can't sit around. So you come and you have to do your thing, even if, like my mother now is going to have the surgery on her ankle again to take out the hardware and clean it out, put it back in. No one could go with her. I mean, no one, you know, you can't go with her to the hospital. No one could visit her. So, so there's no one allowed besides patients in the hospital. So he's saying you, you have to get out of the hospital as quick as possible. Therefore, he's allowing you to, even to drive back. If it's within an hour or two before the end of Shabbos, you're he says, wait in your car. Get in your car and wait there and then drive back afterwards if need be. He says there are circumstances where donation to a distinguished chola, distinguished patient, sorry, not distinguished, designated patient requires us to provide numerous donors. This too may be done. So he says, let's say there's many people going to donate plasma for one specific patient. He says, because they're looking for a match or whatever the case is, a closer match. So he says, that's also many people can drive on Shabbos to donate even for this one person. So let's say 10 people are, are called up as potential donors. They all should go even on Shabbos and drive. It is important to point out that the preliminary, preliminary information indicates that the earlier a patient receives the plasma, the more likely it is that it will recover, Bezos Hashem. Therefore, we should not be delaying. He says, don't push it off till after Yantav. You need to go and drive immediately on Yantav. If you are donating to a hospital, this is in bold letters, I don't know why, it's a new paragraph, if you're donating to a hospital or to the New York blood bank and are not donating for a designated recipient, so he says, on Yantif Rishon, so as we know, there's two days of Yantif in Chutzlaretz, for some of us. 
Um, so he says, uh, so he says, uh, so there's two days. As we know, the first day is biblical, it's the right. Second day is just the custom that we kept because we, they, in those days, of course, they didn't know without getting into the whole issue, which I had explained on Yadza to my daughter. She was not happy about it either. Maybe I'll have her give Ron a call. Um, so the, the, uh, the, so the second day is only, we only keep it today more out of custom, it's not even halacha. It's because uh, halachically, of course, we know the calendar, it's not yantif. But since they started it way back when, thousands of years ago, so it's kept as a custom, etc., etc. Um, and uh, so without getting into the details of that, so he says, on yantif rishon, which means the first day of Chag, so he's talking about if you're not donating for a specific patient, you're just giving it to a bank, so he says, if possible, you should avoid malacha doraisa. That means you should avoid doing any biblical uh, violations to donate and have a non-Jew drive you both ways. So he says, you, you use Uber, try to get someone, a non-Jew, to drive you if it's the first day of Yantif. Again, if it's, not a, if it's a specific patient, you can drive yourself. But he says, if you're just donating it to a bank, he says, try to use Uber. Remember, re- reimbursement for this expense is available. Not only that, they'll provide you, he says, the organization will pay you. Don't worry about the Uber cost. He says, you may leave your phone on to receive information regarding your appointment and to reply on Shabbos and Yantif. Please note, when a donor slat, slats can be filled by the hospital, bank, or blood bank from non-Jewish sources, we will not schedule you for Yantif and Shabbos. So again, my sister is coordinating the scheduling, so he's writing her this, that part of their thing is if they have enough other people donating, non, non-Jews, to fill those slots on Yantif for the general bank, then they won't be scheduling the, the Orthodox Jews or the religious Jews, the people of Shem or Shabbos. Um, so he says, don't worry about it. We're only going to call you if we need your blood on Yantif. So you can leave your phone on, answer the phone call, reply. At the moment, our community is uniquely organized to fill these donor slots. So as I mentioned, it's a beautiful thing that the, the Orthodox community in New York literally is running this whole effort. All the organizations are run by the Orthodox community. Um, unfortunately, it's because they also had a lot of people who had it and were cured. So they have the ability to, to easily organize it um, than, than just a general donor um, you know, drive. So that's Anyantav Rishon. So he said Anyantav Rishon, again, if you're able to to drive, to get an Uber, or to go some other way, have a go, your neighbor drive you, that's the best. On Yantav Sheni, on the second day Yantav, as we're saying, is only rabbinical, so he says one may drive to donate, no problem, get in your car, um, even to the blood bank uh, slash hospital bank, that means even if it's not going for a specific donor, he may return as well, um, drive back, no problem. Unless it is a brief period until Matzah Yantav, unless again, you're going right before the end of Shabbos Yantav, in which case you should wait in your car um, if, if, uh, if need be. Despite this heter, he says, even though we're being lenient about it, we are attempting to use non-Jewish drivers on Yantav Sheni as well. So they organized a pool of, of uh, drivers for, to, that, are, that will pick you up, but he says, technically speaking, if for whatever reason you can't get the driver, you can drive without a problem. Even if it involves a phone call or Uber message, this is preferable to actually driving. Yeah. Right before the end of Shabbos, meaning let's say I donated, I drove into Manhattan on Shabbos to donate. I drove into the hospital, and now there's only an hour. By the time I finish, take take my plaza, whatever the process is, takes an hour, hour and a half. So now it's an hour before the end of Shabbos. He says better just wait in your car till the end of Shabbos and then drive back, as opposed to driving back that last hour. You can hold out for now. You know, you have your orange juice with you, and you you they give you your free donut on Pesach. They can't give you a donut, but. so he says that's what he means. Not before Shabbos. He means at the end of Shabbos or Yantif, so wait that hour if it's an hour before. 
And he ends up saying, he says, when traveling with the car service, you should wear a mask and gloves anytime you venture out. But certainly in a car service vehicle, you know, meaning car service is the, Jew, is the New York name for Uber or taxis, as we know. They don't have that in Houston. Um, when I first moved there, when Faggy first moved there, we, we, she, she called the school. There was a day our car was, we had a flat tire or something, she called the school. And uh, she, she didn't have numbers. It was like a month after move. She called the school where she was working. She said, I need a number of a car service. I said, what? I had no idea. What's car service? <laughs> in the Houston, I don't think they use those terms in Texas. Um, so, uh, so he says, if you are a donor, you've had COVID and have developed some level of immunity. Still, the data on this is incomplete and you should avoid taking chances. So he's saying... He's giving out a psakh that you have to wear a mask and gloves even though you already had COVID and so there's less concern but he says since the data is incomplete um, about getting it again so therefore he says you're still obligated to wear your gloves and masks when you go out and in the car service. Stay well, wishing all a good yantif and davening for uh, good news from all our many patients. Israel Reisman. So this is just to show you, this is just to show you, I, I, when I got this, when my sister sent it to me, I was like shocked. I sent it out to the rabbis here in Houston, because there were some plasma donors here going to Methodist. Um, like I, I sent to Rabbi Gelman, he was like shocked. I, he said, wow, can I post this publicly in a, in a rabbinic forum that I'm in? I said, listen, no one told me you can't. I'm assuming it's for a plasma tape. But he was like, some of the authors were literally shocked by just how lenient we're going ahead. I mean, this is not, we're not talking about going to, you're not, you know, you're not in danger here. We're, you're cured and you're just donating to a bank, potentially where we don't even have the complete data that it might be able to save someone's life in the future. And we're allowing you to literally violate Shabbat, uh, which is an unbelievable leniency. So this is just a, a window into a small, uh, just a small amount. Like I said, I have a hundred pages of, of fascinating response uh, um, about all various topics um, that are literally coming out. So this morning when I, I WhatsApp my sister, I said, do you have any other good emails? I'm giving a class in an hour. So she texts me back. I'll, I'll read you her WhatsApp. Um, she wrote me back. One second. I wrote... Uh, Um, trying to find it. It was a long discussion. So I'm giving. I wrote to her at 7:40 this morning. I said I'm giving a class in an hour to doctors on the COVID um, rulings. Do you have any other psakim about plasma donations besides the email from Reisman that you can email me? So you, she wrote. I have a few, but basically they're all the same. It is also no longer in effect. So I wrote. What's no longer in effect? I thought maybe the whole plasma thing. So she wrote. The the psak is meaning that now the ruling is they are now stockpiling plasma and they have enough. So if, so if you give it, it's not used for a few days. So therefore, the ruling is no longer in effect that you could violate Shabbat to donate the plasma. That's what she was writing me. So she's saying, she, they're all the emails were the same, and, but the rulings, that's what I'm saying, in real time today, many of these rulings that were written a week ago or f even five days ago are now changing because as they get their scientific information, um, the science is changing or the medical information is changing, so then the psak obviously changes. So this, she's saying, the rabbi said, this ruling is no longer in effect because now they have stock, there's enough people donated that they have stockpiles and it's not used for a few days. So just, it's fascinating to see again this uh, metamorphosis of halacha that's happening here, just as it's happening in the medical world, which everyone is just as, see the rabbis, believe it or not, are almost as clueless as the doctors um, uh, in this case. <laughs>